Hey, you guys can be seated. Hello, everybody. So good to be with you, also online and at the Moon Campus. My name is Steve Pink, and I'm the Communications Director here, and it's my pleasure to be with you here today. Uh, We're currently in a series called Follow on the Gospel of Mark. And so far, uh, we've worked our way through chapters one, two, and three, really, really good stuff. It's a fantastic gospel, one of the three synoptic gospels. From what we can understand, the first gospel that was written in our Bible. And today we're going to be looking at chapter four and the special kinds of stories that Jesus begins to tell here in this chapter. And we're going to take a very close look at one of these stories in particular, which is one of the most popular and important stories that Jesus ever told. Now, we all love stories, don't we? We love stories. In fact, one could say that humans were created for stories. People have been making, telling, and enjoying stories all throughout human history. Since the tales we told one another around those ancient campfires, oral traditions, one person to another, one generation to the other, to our modern books and movies and cable TV and streaming video and on and on and on it goes. We just love experiencing stories. And for many Americans, it's practically all they do with their free time reading, watching, and listening to stories. We just can't get enough of them. Owen Flanagan of Duke University, a leading researcher on narrative stories, writes this. Evidence strongly suggests that humans in all cultures come to cast their own identity in some sort of narrative form. We are inveterate storytellers. We love to tell stories. And I'm here to tell you today that Jesus is a master storyteller on so many levels. We even know that as Logos, the word of God, he essentially inspired the entire Bible. So yes, he's an incredible storyteller. And so we're gonna take a look together at one of the most important stories that he ever told. Mark 4, join with me there. Verses one and two. And again, Jesus began to teach by the lake. The crowd that gathered around him was so large that he got into the boat and sat, it out, sat, uh, sat in it out on the lake while all the people were along the shore at the water's edge. He taught them many things by parables. Parables. And this word parable will go on to be used an additional 48 times in the New Testament. And the word is derived from the Greek parabole which means to cast something alongside of something else, to cast it along something else. Now, these parables are more than your typical kinds of stories. To cast something alongside of something else in story form means that you cast something that is known in front of people so as to convey something that was unknown to them before a thing that wouldn't otherwise be, they wouldn't otherwise be capable of grasping because it was invisible to them up to that point. And when Jesus wanted to teach the people spiritual things, he would do this by showing them physical things, visible things, agricultural stories that they'd all understand, rich metaphors, vibrant analogies. If Jesus says that the kingdom of God looks like this, And if you understand what this is, then you might have a chance of understanding what that is. They'd begin to have some sense of what the kingdom of God might be all about. 
If Jesus would have spoken in complex theological terms, speaking over their heads like a systematic theologian in abstractions and grand spiritual theorems, like he certainly could have, he would have left them confused, frustrated, and quite likely even bored. They would have been scratching their heads saying, I think he knows what he's talking about, but I sure don't. But of course, Jesus was infinitely wiser and more effective than that. And so the deepest things that he had to teach them and that he has to teach us, he often typically teaches in parables. Mark chapter four, verses three through nine. In his teaching, he said, listen, our farmer went out to sow his seed. As he was scattering the seed, some fell along the path and the birds came and ate it up. Some fell on rocky places where it did not have much soil. It sprang up quickly because the soil was shallow. But when the sun came up, the plants were scorched and they withered because they had no root. Other seed fell among thorns, which grew up and choked the plants so that they did not bear grain. Still other seed fell on good soil. It came up, grew, and produced a crop, some multiplying 30, some 60, and some a 100 times. Then Jesus said, whoever has ears to hear, let them hear. Now, as Jesus was telling this story, he knew something about that crowd, like all crowds, including perhaps some in our crowd today, both here or at our moon campus or online. Not everybody in the crowd is listening in the same way to what he's telling them. Not everybody's listening with the same ears. Not every heart in that crowd is receiving what is being taught in the same manner. Some of them are open-hearted, and some of them are hard-hearted. Some of them are distracted by thoughts about their schedule. Others are caught up dwelling on some significant challenges that they're having in their lives. Financial challenges, relationship challenges, etc., etc. And some are just flat out apathetic about it all. They're simply disinterested. And so he brings this story into play, something they could all relate to, an agricultural story, a picture they all knew so very well. Everyone would have been incredibly familiar with the image of a seed sower. We obviously plant seed very differently today. But back in those days, it was quite common to see someone out with a pouch full of seed over the shoulder, reaching in and out, grabbing and scattering seed as they walked along. That's the way they planted their fields. It wasn't super scientific. They hadn't attended Hebrew agricultural votech, right? We think of farming as in rows, with a very regulated distribution of seeds. That's not the way they did farming in Jesus' day. They just scattered the seed, and the crops came up all over the place. And you can easily imagine that if you're scattering seed that way, a lot of it gets scattered into places that aren't going to work for the seeds. The seeds will occasionally fall into places that will not be conducive to their germination. And so we have this parable of a seed sower, which is already speaking to the people in the crowd on multiple different levels. And it's landing on different groups of people in a variety of different ways. And it's truly brilliant because of course it is. Because it's Jesus, the very word of God, communicating those words. When he was alone, the 12 and the others around him asked him about the parables. He told them, the secret of the kingdom of God has been given to you, but to those on the outside, Everything is said in parables. 
And so there's a clear insider-outsider dichotomy that Jesus begins to establish here. And Jesus is clearly delineating that these parables are primarily for the outsider. The insiders, Christ's disciples, have been given the secret of the kingdom. But to those on the outside, those who haven't yet given their lives to Jesus, to these he speaks in parables. Now, I remember hearing this parable back before I was saved. And as I've shared with some of you before, I didn't become a Christ follower until I was 30 years old. And across those three decades, I'd heard the parable come up a variety of times in a variety of different settings. And as an unbeliever, I recall pondering the various components of this parable, maybe passively, maybe lightly, just casually thinking about it, asking myself similar questions at different stages of my life. Who was the sower? And why were they sowing? What were, these, what were these seeds and what would they produce? The clear implication with these were that these seeds were incredibly valuable, so I guess I shouldn't wanna miss out on them if they were sowed in my direction, right? And what kind of soil was I? Was I the hard, unyielding soil or was I the rocky soil? Were there thorns growing up in my soil? And if so, what were those thorns? Was it possible that I was good soil and what did that signify? And I'm confident that these are precisely the kinds of questions that in Jesus intends to provoke. And that these questions are an essential part of the process for an outsider. And that this is the beginning of what this parable is intended to accomplish. When an unbeliever like I was begins to ask these questions and starts to ponder them at any level, I believe that the Holy Spirit begins to stir that heart and starts to till the soil that lies within it, prodding and poking it, enlightening it and convicting it, beginning to turn that hard soil into rocky soil and that rocky soil into soil with a few thorns in it and then ultimately that thorny soil becomes soil that is ripe for genuine spiritual renewal. And so this is what this parable can mean to the outsider. And when that seed that God is attempting to plant in their heart does finally take root, it's an incredibly miraculous, life-transforming event. It's incredible. That seed will change everything for them. And I can testify to that fact. That seed will change everything. Later in the chapter, Jesus says, we shall, what shall we say the kingdom of God is like? Or what parable shall we use to describe it? It's like a mustard seed, which is the smallest of all seeds on earth. Yet when planted, it grows and becomes the largest of all garden plants with such big branches that the birds can perch in its shade. This is the power of these seeds that are being sown. To an outsider, the seeds of the kingdom look entirely insignificant. In fact, like mustard seeds, they might seem so small that they're not even very noticeable. But once the seeds of God's kingdom are planted in a human heart and the seed takes root and thrives, it will change everything. It will change our values. It will change our behaviors. It will change our relationships. It will change our families. And it has the power to transform our communities and even entire nations. Ultimately, it will change our spiritual destinies for all of eternity, amen? That's the power of these seeds, these little mustard seeds. 
that to an outsider look like, eh, whatever. What's it gonna do? And so this is where the outsider starts to come in. They start to come in. They come in from the ignorance, they come in from the brokenness, begins to, they begin to come out of the darkness of sin and into the light. In verse nine, Jesus says, whoever has ears to hear, let them hear. Now, before I became a believer, I was completely indifferent to Christianity. Certainly as someone who grew up and uh, worked my young professional life in Western Pennsylvania, I was exposed to the Christian faith in a variety of different forms, but none of it really made any kind of sense to me. It was all completely unattractive to me. It was all kind of like this colorless, desaturated cultural wallpaper. That's what Christianity looked like to me. And I was completely disinterested and none of it was having any kind of an impact on my life. And when I would hear any kind of formal Christian message, like preachers on the radio or television, there was absolutely no connection whatsoever. It was almost like they were speaking an entirely different language. None of it landed. And so at that point, I simply didn't have the ears to hear it. I was completely blind and deaf to the kingdom of God, completely. Another thing that I've shared with some of you before is that for the first 10 years of my career, I was an advertising and graphic arts professor. And I was very tied into the arts community here in Pittsburgh. And I would work closely with the Pittsburgh Arts Festival each year. And one of the, my favorite festival stations was the painting exhibits. And a lot of the paintings in these exhibits, as you can imagine, were very abstract. Which as some of you may know, means that there were no recognizable images in them whatsoever. There was no images you could understand. They were composed primarily of colors, patterns, textures, and shapes in abstracted compositions. And one of the comments <laughs> I would hear again and again, year after year, was the phrase, I could do that. I could do that. People would walk up, look at the painting for a few seconds and say something like, wow, look at that. Even I could do that. And they'd scoff at the painting and shake their head as they were walking away. And of course, I, as a relatively accomplished artist, professor and artist historian, knew that nothing could be further from the truth. They certainly could not do that or anything even close to that. See, abstract art from a gifted artist is incredibly complex, sophisticated stuff. These artists aren't simply splashing paint on a canvas as the uninitiated might assume. They're also weaving into the artwork abstract concepts, they're weaving that into the painting. Things like art history, psychology, social theory, cultural context, and spirituality, they're weaving that into the painting. Vasily Kandinsky was a famous Russian abstract painting master who was highly educated and possessed a genius IQ. And he was famous for bringing a very scientific approach to his paintings. He was also a devout Christian and sought to infuse his paintings with spiritual significance. Additionally, he was an accomplished musician and he would approach his paintings like musical compositions. And he wrote this about that. Color is the keyboard. The eyes are the hammers. The soul is the piano with many strings. The artist is the hand which plays, touching one key or another to cause vibrations in the soul. Yeah, interesting. And one of the incredible innovations that Kandinsky brought into his work 
with his scientific approach was the science of synesthesia. Synesthesia, which is a perceptual phenomenon whereby the stimulation of one sensory pathway leads to a response in a completely different sensory pathway. And there were many testimonies from many, many people over the years, from those who studied one of Kandinsky's paintings in person, in a gallery, for an extended period of time, who began hearing music, as if by magic, in their heads. At first, various notes, and then eventually whole musical compositions. And I can testify to some of this myself. I've experienced some of that myself. It's synesthesia. He wove that kind of science into his paintings. And so in this particular circumstance, having an openness to understand and the eyes to see directly led to having the ears to hear the melodies of Kandinsky's incredible compositions. But in contrast to that, the arts festival patrons that I overheard again and again simply didn't have the eyes to see and understand the brilliance they were mocking and discarding. And it's very much my opinion that it's, this is very similar. It's very much akin to those of us who lack the ears to hear the gospel of Christ. It's a very similar concept. They simply don't have the capacity to understand it. They don't have the tools. They don't have the resources. They're not operating on the same frequency. I wasn't on that frequency at one time. And it made zero sense to me. It had zero value. They simply didn't have the capacity to understand it. 1 Corinthians 2.14, the person without the Spirit does not accept the things that come from the Spirit of God, but considers them foolishness and cannot understand them because they are discerned only through the Spirit. John 3.3, Jesus said, very truly I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they are born again. You can't see it. You can't understand it, you can't process it. But once I was born again, everything changed. 1 Peter 1.23, for you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and enduring word of God. And this was a radical transformation for me. And suddenly and persistently, it all made incredible, beautiful sense, almost overnight. Jesus, the gospel, Christianity, the Bible, the church, the compulsion to love God and to love others. I could hear it, I could see it, I could taste it, I could smell it. I could understand it for the first time in my life. It was like a massive spiritual switch had been flipped. And when I heard people teaching about Jesus then, it all made perfect, glorious sense to me. And I, still, and I simply couldn't get enough of it. I couldn't get enough of it. And I still can't get enough of it. I still can't to this day. Now I had the ears to hear. So, what then? What then? What about those of us who have experienced that? Who are now on the inside? What's this parable supposed to tell those of us that already have the Holy Spirit living in our hearts and proudly call Jesus our Lord and Savior? What's this parable supposed to tell us? Later on, when Jesus was alone with the disciples, he begins to explain the specific implications of each of these soils how the hard soil is those that have given their hearts over so completely to evil. Pride, greed, lust, envy, 
hatred. There's, that there's little chance for the seed of the kingdom finding any kind of purchase there. It's fallow ground. In fact, it's like, it's poison ground. The seed can't grow there. And the shallow soil are those that respond enthusiastically and emotionally to Jesus. But beneath the surface, their heart is still broken and corrupted. Any of what appears to be legitimate spiritual growth in their lives quickly fades away. As soon as trouble comes, as we all know it will, they abruptly fall away. If you've been around the church for any significant period of time, as I have been, you've unfortunately met a lot of these sad souls. They're seemingly on fire for Christ one moment and then they're gone the next. Breaks your heart. And then the thorny soil are those that have a fairly legitimate, productive faith. They're probably involved in church ministry, they've been going to church events, they might, they're around the church, maybe they've been around the church for a long time. But the worries of this life, the deceitfulness of wealth, and the desires for other things come in and choke out the word. Their pursuit of personal success and comfort and all kinds of other worldly things, the typical list like sex, money, power, and prestige, it just comes up and chokes out all of their spiritual potential for the Lord. But some of the time, that seed of the kingdom falls on good soil. Soil that has been tilled by the Holy Spirit, hearts that are ready to repent from their sin, submit to the Lordship of Jesus in their lives, and do absolutely whatever it takes to serve with gladness and steadfastness and boldness in the kingdom of God. They will go on to produce a crop, some 30, some 60, and some 100 times what was sown. What's that crop? What is that crop? Which is the same question I asked myself so many years ago before I was a believer. What's this crop that Jesus is referencing? And certainly there's some relevance here to our individual spiritual growth, right? When we talk about uh, crop, you know, fruitfulness and harvest and abundance, we talk about our personal spiritual growth. That we will produce abundant spiritual fruit in our lives. John 15, five. I am the vine, you are the branches. If you remain in me, and I and you, you will bear much fruit. And what is that fruit? And of course, it's the fruit of the Spirit, as we see in Galatians 5. Love, joy, peace, forbearance, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. These are what it's supposed to look like in an individual's life, in an individual's heart. And this is typically what we wanna take away from these passages, our individual opportunities and obligations to grow spiritually. And certainly, this is an important part of the process. But there's so much more to our fruitful mandate from Jesus than that. There's so much more. And what Jesus is getting at here in these parables is that he wants us to take this radical, miraculous gift of the kingdom and begin sharing it consistently, persistently from the inside out. From the inside out. Later in the chapter, Jesus adds an interesting little mini parable that seems designed to add some kind of significant nuance to the sower parable. But he seems to be taking a weird kind of little left turn here as it's a little bit of an anomaly. It's the only one of the four parables in this chapter that isn't an agricultural metaphor. And I've found that when something like this happens in scripture, 
When something appears disjunctive or out of place, but it seems like it was kind of intended to be there, then we need to pay some closer attention to it. There's likely some kind of crucial significance that's beginning to be emphasized there. And here's what that little mini parable says. He said to them, do you bring in a lamp to put it under a bowl or a bed? Instead, don't you put it on its stand? For whatever is hidden is meant to be disclosed and whatever is concealed is meant to be brought out into the open. If anyone has ears to hear, let them hear. Now, the common lamps, of course, in that day were these very like, simple, shallow clay pots that were filled with oil. Little cheap clay pots, for the most part, with a wick in the spout for the flame. Many of you have seen them before or something similar to them. And a lampstand, unlike those ornate metal stands we might picture from the tabernacle or the temples, um, was a little shelf that protruded out of the wall of most common homes. It was like a little bit of a shelf that was worked right into the architecture, it was built right into the stone. That was the lampstand. And the higher it was positioned, the more light that could be dispersed. And the point Jesus is making here should be pretty clear, that the light of the gospel is intended to be cast as far and as wide as possible. It's not supposed to be hoarded as your own personal reading lamp. It's not meant to be your own private little nightlight. And if, you're going to, if we're gonna tie this back into our original agricultural metaphor, our seed sowing parable, then the seed of the kingdom isn't just meant for your private flower pots. It's not just meant for your pl- private planter. It's not just so you can have a nice landscaping around your house. This seed is way more important than that. This seed is way more powerful than that. It would be like if somebody gave you a priceless genetic super seed, like they came to you and said, here's, here's what I got. It's like this priceless genetic super seed from the factory that's capable of feeding millions upon millions of people. And you've planted it in one of those little pots we keep on the windowsill in front of our sinks. That's the super seed in this little pot. This seed is meant to produce a crop that can bless hundreds and thousands and even countless millions. And we must be mindful to sow it with this potential in mind. Amen? And so in conclusion, if you're here today or joining with us at our Moon Campus or online and you're uncertain about the condition of your heart, if you fear that the soil of your heart might be too hard or too rocky, or you believe there's significant thorns of one kind or another in your life obstructing your spiritual growth, then I encourage you, invite the Holy Spirit into your heart and ask him to begin tilling the soil of your heart. And I promise you that if you do this, he will respond. I promise you. As Jesus said in Matthew chapter seven, verse seven, ask and it will be given to you Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be opened to you. If you invite him in, I assure you, God will respond. And if you're listening to what I've been communicating today and you do have the ears to hear it and process it and understand it, if you have the seeds of the kingdom in your heart and the fruit of the spirit flourishing in your life, please don't hoard those seeds. Don't keep this incredibly good news to yourself. Don't Don't hide that super seed away. Those seeds have the power to change everything. 
They will transform lives, relationships, families, communities, and they're the only thing with the power to redeem this nation. The only thing. Those seeds can change the world. Don't plant them in that little pot on your windowsill. Don't keep them for yourself. Spread those seeds anywhere and everywhere and just see what the Holy Spirit will do with that crop. I'm beyond confident it will be an incredible harvest. Amen? Let's pray together. Thank you, Lord, once again for the opportunity to come into this place and celebrate you and celebrate your word with this wonderful church family here at Pathway Online, at the Moon Campus, everywhere. <laughs> I just love being with these wonderful people of God in this place, worshiping you, adoring you, celebrating you, looking at your word, pondering it, meditating on it, picking it apart. And Lord, I just pray, Lord, that you open the, uh, open the brilliance and the significance of the par- this parable in each of our hearts, Lord, and help us to apply it in a very specific and unique way in each of our contexts. Everybody in here in this place comes from a different background, a different situation, has different responsibilities, different challenges, different concerns, different opportunities, different resources. But I pray, Lord, that in a very unique and powerful way, you apply this parable to all of our lives and help us to understand the significance of the different soils. If it's somebody that doesn't quite have the ears to hear yet, Lord, that's listening to this, I pray you will give them the ears to hear it and respond to it. And for those of us that do get it and we're on the inside, we're in on the game, Lord, give us the passion and the compulsion to spread that light as far and as wide as we possibly can and to spread those seeds, spread those seeds, spread those seeds everywhere because it will truly, it's not only gonna transform our lives, which yes, yay, beautiful, (laughs) it's a wonderful thing, but it will transform this world. It will transform the world around us, Lord, and I just pray that we all have the boldness and the courage and the the wisdom to do that the way you would want us to do. Inspire us through the Holy Spirit. Guide us and direct us in this, we pray in Jesus' name. Everybody said? Amen. Amen. Pleasure to be with all of you here today. Thank you.